Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Aggie Hoops Weekly, and you're not going to believe this, but we played well at home. We're going to talk about our surprising home victory over Kansas State, a better-than-expected road performance at Florida, and then we're going to sit down. We have a really good conversation with new play-by-play guy Andrew Monaco to talk about his transition to Aggieland and how he's felt following the Aggie Hoops and football teams so far this year. Let's roll. Welcome back to Aki Hoops Weekly. After a somewhat disappointing and disheartening week last week, we come back with a little bit more optimism after a pretty strong showing against Florida and then a nice win over Kansas State. So I'm going to turn it over to my good friend David and ask, how are you feeling now that we've seen some good effort in the face of adversity from the Aggies? I'll tell you what, man, my main takeaway here is that I'm done overreacting. So two weeks ago, I sat here on the podcast and I told you, we're going to turn it around. This is the this is the moment we've been waiting for to maybe push towards a 500 or above 500 SEC record. That was ludicrous. Last week, it was all doom and gloom, and I told you without an ounce or with complete sincerity, I told you we might be the worst Power 5 team in the country. That was also ludicrous. This week, we were better, and I think now what I've learned is that we're just an average, if not below average, inconsistent team. We're capable of good things. We're not going to string it together multiple nights in a row. Most nights, we're not even going to string it together for 40 minutes. It's inconsistency, but the ceiling is still there. And I've got to ask you a question, Blake. Last week, you said you did not know if this team, if this roster had the intestinal fortitude, that was your phrase, to pull this thing out of the gutter. How do you feel about this response? Was this a satisfactory effort this week? Yeah, I think it was on account of all parties, right? The coaching staff, the team itself. We'll talk about this more at length later, but I think that you had a really nice showing against Florida. Yeah, you didn't pick up the win, but that's that's a tough gym to go in and play in. And then the win over K-State was quite unexpected, to be honest with you. That was a hot team coming in. They were a team that's known as a defensive stalwart, and AM said, okay, fine, you want to play that way? We'll play that way and ground things out with them and put the clamps on them. So I I was really impressed with what I saw from the team this week, especially what we saw against K-State in the fact that you had seen A&M with many chances to close out a game where they had been in it or leading late, and it didn't matter. Minnesota, Washington, yeah, they you could say they UC closed Irvine, out. Yeah, early, UC Irvine, Arkansas. Arkansas, yeah. Even, even the Oregon State game, which they won, that wasn't them closing the game out. That was just holding on in a white-knuckle ride, just tr- praying for the clock to run out. They made fewer mistakes in that game. They didn't right. grab it. They just didn't want to lose it as badly. <laughs> right. This game, Kansas State made a furious rally towards the end of the game, and they got it back down to, to three, four points there at the end of the game, and A&M said, no, we're not going to allow this to happen, and A&M closed the game out. So I'm actually quite pleased with the response. I didn't expect this, in all honesty, from what we saw last week. I didn't think they were going to come out and respond this way, but they did, and I'm, I'm happy to see that they have. Well, let's run through the games real quick, and then we'll get into some of our larger talking points. And I'm going to start with the effort at Florida. Now, Florida, uh, to your point earlier, they're a good defense. They had the best defensive metrics in the SEC. They also play slow, and that was a combination that we both thought was going to give us a ton of problems. And we went on the road, Blake, as 11-point underdogs, and we smoked the Florida Gators in the first half. 
We got open looks at will. We scored 46 points in that gym. I don't think anybody was ready for that. We had a 46-33 halftime lead. And even the most pessimistic among us was thinking, we're going to go to Florida and win that game. What happened in the second half was really bizarre because as hot as we were shooting in the first half, Florida was even hotter in the second half. It took a truly almost miraculous shooting spree from them to flip this game on its ear and to end up winning by nine points. Final score was Florida 81, Texas A&M 72. But that game was close. That was a close game up until there were only a couple minutes remaining. The truth of the matter was that Florida had two guys in Noah Locke and Kevon Allen who just couldn't miss. And they combined for the most threes by two players in Florida school history. What are you going to do, right? So it was a little unfortunate that we got hot on the same day that someone got hotter. But it put us on notice that the team hadn't given up for the season, that good things were coming. And that manifested itself in the home victory over Kansas State. So this was a shorthanded performance. J.J. Chandler was announced out before the game, slid Brandon Mahon into the starting role. It gave legitimate minutes to both Collins and to Mark French. And we played well enough. Uh, The first half was nothing to write home about. It was ugly. It was turnover-laden. If you miss the game, I would suggest maybe if you're going to watch a replay, pick it up at halftime. You're not missing much if you just skip the first half entirely. But the second half, watch the second half because what you would see is that Wendell Mitchell put on a show. He scored 22 in the second half, Blake. He carried us, honestly, on both ends. He was fantastic. He was the best player on the floor. And the part that really gives both of us true optimism is that we closed the game out. We didn't make mistakes down the stretch. We hit our free throws when Kansas State started fouling late to extend things. And at its at the most basic level, we didn't really do anything that dumb down the stretch. It was not a mistake-free game. I think we had 20 or 21 turnovers. But down the stretch, when K-State threatened to make things interesting, we held our nerve and we were good enough. So it's a one-on-one week, and things are feeling a little better than the last time we spoke. You saw a few things coming out of this these two games. Turnovers are up, right? This is something we had talked about earlier this year that AM's turnover numbers were actually down a little bit. You know, whereas last year you would expect to see 18 to 20 turnovers a game. This year it had been closer to 13, 14, 15 turnovers a game. This week you saw 20 turnovers, as you mentioned, against K State, and you also saw 16 against Florida. The turnover numbers are up. But the shooting percentages were up this week. I think that was the big turning point for the Aggies. They were shooting the ball much better. TJ Stark seems to to have found a better rhythm. He's not forcing the issue so much. He's looking to get others involved. He had six assists against Florida. And then against K-State, another six assists. So six assists a night for TJ Starks is a good number, right? Because he is a ball-dominant player. He's got to learn to pick his spots, and I think that that was one of the things we've been frustrated with him early on this season. He feels like he's had to shoulder so much of that load that he hasn't been getting others involved in the offense, and now you're starting to see him trust the guys around him a little bit more. You're starting to see Savion Flag become a more consistent, more reliable player. We had seen flashes from Savion throughout last year and, and this year. He, he's been better but it, there were still games where he would kind of disappear on you. These last few weeks, he he hasn't disappeared. He's been really consistent. But I think Chuck Mitchell has been phenomenal. He put on an absolute show against Kansas State. All 22 points for him came in the second half, but he took the game over and was just outstanding. I, I don't have enough superlatives to accurately describe his performance against K-State on Saturday. So you nailed it, Blake. You talked about the fact that we shot better, and I'm going to throw some numbers at you real quick. Against Florida, 9 for 22 from beyond the arc, 41%. Against Kansas State, 8 for 20 from beyond the arc, 40%. 
those are solid shooting numbers, right? We've occasionally touched those numbers, but not very often. That's a solid shooting effort. I want to drill a little deeper, though, because you add those two games together. That's 17 for 42. Wendell Mitchell is 11 for 15 from beyond the arc in his last two games, which is blistering hot. Gives the rest of the team a 6 for 27 mark. Oops. I'm going to... I'm going to drill our offense down to something that's real simple. If your name's not Chuck Mitchell, get inside the lane. Get in the paint. Stop shooting threes if you're not that dude because he's the only guy that's shown to be a consistent threat from the outside. But uh, put it this way, he's so hot that he's making our overall team numbers look competent from beyond the arc, and that's not easy to do. Yeah, it's really not. It just underscores how good he's been in these last two games. Nebo played well. I think he has asserted himself as the the better of our two post players. And Mekwulu is still getting the starters minutes, and I don't have any issue with that. It's not that there's a huge disparity between those two guys, because Nebo's actually getting more of the minutes. You actually saw an interesting wrinkle against K-State, where Billy Kennedy actually put both of those guys on the floor together, which was something I think we both (laughs) assumed we would never see for the rest of this year, uh, just simply because you only have two post players in the, in the program right now. So the fact that he was able to put those guys out there together and run a 2-3 zone with Mekawulu and Nebo on that back line, it was a really nice look, and the Aggies did some really nice things out of that. So I, I'm curious to see if we're going to see that a little more often going forward, if he can trust that those guys are going to stay out of foul trouble. As we've talked about, they've done a really nice job navigating foul issues, and so I, I think that that might possibly be something you see a little bit more going forward is getting Mekwulu and Nebo out there to give you a little bit more size. That also allows Savion to play more of a a true three, which I think is better, uh, better suited for Savion's game. He's not a stretch four. People want to talk about him being a stretch four based on his size and based on the fact that A&M really doesn't have any other fours other than John Walker. But I think Savion's much better suited to play that traditional three role. So I think that this this could be an interesting wrinkle that you that you may see going forward. I don't know. I think it was also bred a little bit out of necessity simply because you didn't have J.J. Chandler in that K-State game. Like I said, it was an interesting wrinkle, but it worked well. It did, and I think what he did is he put it on tape as well. It's nice to know that that's something we're willing to do. You said earlier that they tend to never play at the same time. That's almost true to a comical extent. Their minutes almost always add up to exactly 40. Uh, it's literally just one for the other, as as you'd like for the entire game. Against Kansas State, Mike Wulu had 17, Nebo had 30. So, yeah, you can stand a reason from that. You can surmise that there was 7 to 10 minutes. They were both on the floor. I don't think it hurt us in any way. I think they both played smart. The team only committed 7 fouls on the, on the afternoon, which was awfully nice, uh, given that we were so shorthanded. But... No, I think, it's, I think it's only a good thing, and you want to be able to win as many ways as you can, right? You don't want to lock into only one one path to victory. So if we ever need to put two big guys on the floor at the same time, at least now we've got a basis for it, and we know it can be done. Yeah, and one other thing that you saw this week that was much better than what we saw last week, and even quite a bit earlier this season, is I think Billy Kennedy certainly reached a, a better level of comfort with this group. He, he did some nice things tactically. You saw the return of the Aggies' lethal inbound plays for some nice, easy buckets. You know That's mm-hmm. something that had kind of been a hallmark the last couple seasons, and this year they hadn't done it quite as well in that department. 
but you you saw them start to execute those those inbounds plays. He started calling the right ones to get guys open. He switched to the two three zone against K State, which was awesome. It kept them from getting back in the game. It kept them from establishing Dean Wade inside in the second half. Challenged them to knock down shots, and, and they just didn't. They they weren't a great shooting team, and and Anum was able to take advantage. They looked like they had a cohesive plan in that game, especially coming down the stretch. There was a level of execution that you hadn't seen from the Aggies in a stretch run, really at any point this year. So I will give Billy Kennedy his credit and say, you know, he recovered nicely this week. I think everybody had to pull together and, and realize that the effort that they had been giving wasn't enough, and I think that included the coaching staff. So my my credit to them, you know, I, I don't know how much it changes in the long run, but I, I do think that for a week they, they pulled it together rather nicely. I don't know if it changes in the long run either. I hope it does. I will say, Blake, I'm guarded. The flip-flop of the two weeks leading into this week has me stopping a little short of proclaiming whether this will or whether it may continue beyond this point. Um, we do have a tough week of home games ahead with undefeated in the SEC LSU coming to town, followed by the number one team in the country, Tennessee. I don't know if these things are going to continue against the backdrop of that type of opposition, but everything you said was technically true. We we got better in those areas, and I think there's now at least cause for gentle optimism as, as we hit a tougher stretch of play. Well, let's talk about that, because I noticed on Tuesday after the Florida game, you posted a comment on Twitter saying something to the effect that the Aggies put forth a good effort but came up short. And you promptly got flamed by no less than probably two dozen people who all proclaimed your your shallow attempt at a moral victory and uh, the declaration of a good effort was was less than palatable to, to all of those people. So I, I want to give you a chance to counter here or at least offer your point of view on on the context of a moral victory in this situation. So I'd love to, and I, I would start just by saying that all losses are not held equally, right? We were morose. We were down in the dumps last time we spoke because we had just put forth two truly terrible home defeats together and back-to-back. We had the quotes that we shared about the players questioning our effort, players bashing each other on the floor. It was It felt like the wheels were about to fall off. And it was in that context that we went on the road and scored 46 points against the best defense in the SEC. I was happy with that. We then followed that up by pushing the game to, I would say, it was still close with two or three minutes left. And Florida finally pulled away only after hitting, I think, 11 for 15 threes in the second half. So you looked at a situation where you were a double-digit dog coming off one of the worst weeks in program history. And you played well. You didn't win, but you played well. I think it's worth calling out things like that, right? I don't think every loss is worth describing in the exact same context. I think, and I'm happy to do this again, I call it a good effort. Good effort on the road, but we lost. Uh, but you were right. We uh, That was the language I used when I added it to the uh, the Twitter, I guess, recap from, from the GBH Master account. And people were not having it. <laughs> they were not... Uh, willing to see the phrase good effort attached to a loss. So I don't know what that Venn diagram looks like of the people who were yelling at the GBH Master account and the listeners of this podcast. But if there's any intersection there, I would only say, how would you have us describe that game in the context of the week that was? I feel like there's really nothing else to say other than it's better than we expected, but we still lost. I think there's room in the middle. That's where I'll leave it. And I think that's a fair point. 
looking at the situation, we knew going into this year, especially with Admon Gilder out, your ceiling overall was the best you could hope for in this situation was eight conference wins. I mean, you look at Florida going to Gainesville, that's that's a tough game, especially in a game where they're celebrating Kayvon Allen. You know, they came out and shot the ball really well in that second half. It's one of those things you chalk it up, it happens. There's not a whole lot you can do. It wasn't like it was a, a struggle for the Aggies where they didn't shoot the ball well. You know, they actually played reasonably well, shot the ball pretty decently, especially in the first half. Second half wasn't wasn't bad by any stretch. But, I mean, I, I don't think it was... I, I think you're right. You should have some ability to judge a game based on the effort that the team gives. It, in a situation where they had just gone out and laid an egg against Missouri and didn't even look remotely interested in even being there in their own gym. The fact that they came out and and put forth a good showing against Florida, that is something that's noteworthy and something that deserves to be acknowledged. So I I don't fault you for that. I understand where you're coming from. And I think, in all honesty, for this fan base, I know there are a significant portion of people who who are quite frustrated with the direction of the program and the man at the top. And I think that the fear is if you acknowledge positives in these moral victories, then it enables a culture where that becomes the norm and that becomes okay. And I think yeah, that that's the yeah. general fear. And I, and I understand where those people are coming from, but I, I think that there also has to be an acknowledgement that Scott Woodward is not going to sit idly by while a program struggles to be mediocre i'll only say this i think there are people out there who would have us submit two word recaps for losses that just said fire kennedy submit print you know send it out there and the the frustration is to the point where people aren't really interested in a nuanced discussion about how or why we lost or maybe positives that might exist in a loss and if people want to have that opinion i think they're more than entitled to it i will say that typing fire kennedy and pressing enter does not make for good content, so we will probably continue to expand beyond that just a little bit, but uh, I understand. All right, so there were a couple other big news items this week. Um, there were. Mark French got a scholarship. That's quite an exciting news for him. Really cool to, to see a guy who's been around the program for four years now get a chance to get a scholarship and uh, get some school paid for, so really happy for him. But in classic A&M basketball fashion, we couldn't let a happy, fun story linger for too long without having something needlessly negative pop its head in. And that happened via Isaac Chu resigning abruptly to quote-unquote spend more time with family. People for a a hot minute, people tried to make this about the Kennedy situation and his coaching staff falling apart. I won't speculate. I will only say that some cursory Googling can lead people to maybe a separate conclusion. And I will leave it at that. But that was also some news. Just, you know, that was some news. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was news. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm touching this news with a 20-foot pole. I'm just I'm poking it briefly. That was news, and I'm not going to dive any deeper. Yeah, and really the impact is is that you're looking at what is what is the rest of the staff going to have to do to pick up the slack in Chu's absence for the rest of the season because the way the team is structured, you've got Kennedy and three assistants. Well, now 
one-third of that assistant core is gone. So it's Kennedy and two two assistants. You've got Ulrich Maligi, and you've got Jeff Reynolds. And those are your two assistant coaches. You've got a couple other guys. Darby Rich is your performance and, and weight training coach. And you've got the trainers and the video coordinators. So, you know, those guys are going to have to step up. Darby's going to probably have to pull in some extra hours. I bet on uh, Marshall Morehouse, the video coordinator, he's going to have to spend some extra hours you know, helping with scouting and, and those types of things. So I think that's your biggest your biggest concern there is the extra hours that everybody has to pull to, to make up for that gap there. So other than that, yeah, there's a lot of speculation as to what's going on behind the scenes, but I, I don't feel comfortable adding to any of that just simply because I don't know enough to, to speculate. So with that being said, now comes the really fun part of the podcast. We've got a really great interview this week. Andrew Monaco, the new voice of the Aggies, has uh, joined us this week to talk about his experience here in Aggieland and more specifically his his time with the basketball team and, and the things that he's observed, the things that he's seen. This is a guy who's been around the game for a very long time at a very high level. He knows good basketball, and he's a very insightful guy. This is a really cool conversation. If you skipped the first 15 minutes of the podcast, well done. Stick around. You'll want to hear this conversation. Uh, Yeah, all I can say is Andrew was very generous with his time. He gave us a ton of insight. With apologies to our prior guest, he's probably my favorite guest we've had this year. So for those who have uh, made it this far, you're in for a treat. We're going to throw it now to our pre-recorded interview with Andrew Monaco. All right, so this is an exciting time for David and I. We are getting to interview the voice of the Aggies. Andrew Monaco is the the new play-by-play announcer for Texas A&M basketball, and he is joining us now on Aggie Hoops Weekly. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you've got quite the extensive resume. You've you've done play-by-play in a number of sports for a number of teams. Uh, you have a bit of an Aggie connection as well. So can you give listeners an idea of, of your background, kind of your, your professional history, and how you actually ended up at Texas A&M? So I come here from San Antonio where I had worked with the Spurs for, it's the last 11 years and with Spurs Sports and Entertainment uh, for the past 16 years. And prior to that, also in the NBA with uh, the Orlando Magic organization. So that's where, the, that's where some of the basketball is. While with the Spurs, besides just the NBA team, also the opportunity to do WNBA uh, there for you know, it was 15 years there before that, that moved on. And then also while in Orlando with the Magic, that was, that was actually my first foray uh, in TV to do college sports there. Uh, Sunshine Network, which is now Fox Sports Florida and Fox Sports Sun. Uh, Sunshine, as well as Fox Sports South out of Atlanta. The old Trans-America Athletic Conference, which became the Atlantic Sun. Uh, That's what uh, the University of Central Florida was in. A lot of the Florida schools, they would cover. uh, And uh, that was a fun time, not, not just stepping into... Uh, the TV at that time, which was a new realm for me. Uh, but a, a lot of those games that we did together, uh, Florida, Florida State, uh, as well as UCF, and uh, as I said, the, the state schools, that was with Charles Davis, uh, who is now at NFL Network and on Fox, uh, and just a great time working with him. And we did a, we did a number of things together. So we kind of learned TV together with 
my boss uh, with the magic at the time was directing and the producer was the executive producer at, at, at sunshine. So that was, that was really neat to be immersed. Uh, we kind of filled in for everybody, but also those games around the state. And that's what, that's what kind of made it fun to be on that, to, to, to be on that trajectory, if you will. And then with, with, uh, the move to San Antonio still had a chance to do some stuff for Fox sports Southwest, uh, uh in the big 12 when A&M was still in the big 12 and run up to, uh, to Austin when A&M would play Texas, uh, big 12 hoops, that package had a chance, had a chance to be a part of that. I, I've just been really fortunate to be able to do both, you know, radio and TV and a whole bunch of sports. So when the opportunity for A&M opened, uh, to me, there's, there, there are few jobs like the A&M job, in all honesty. Um, I think it's a brand. I think it's a national brand. Uh, and and to, get a, to get a job like this is, to me, it's pretty exciting. I had a friend of mine say, you know, that's a legacy job. And I had never thought of it like that, but it really is. It's, it's the best job that I could, that I could possibly have, and, and I am absolutely thrilled to be here. Well, we're certainly glad that you made the jump. And it, it's been a pretty interesting first year for you. You've had the chance to call one of the most memorable football games in NCAA history on top of the TJ Starks buzzer beater uh, just a few weeks ago. <laughs> Walk us through what your experience has been like in Aggieland in year one. Oh, well, first of all, I, I got to thank everyone for the welcome. And I mean, not just me, but my entire family. Uh, I, I, that has been overwhelming, but I mean in a positive way. Um, and that started that started in the summer uh, from the well wishes, uh, from my partners, <laughs> uh, first when I, when I got the job and then we had a, a 12th man meeting in Bastrop and a chance to meet everybody from the 12th man foundation and the student athletes who were there and the, and the coaches, uh, it's, it's, it's been a wonderful welcome. And I think the other thing is I, you, you, you always imagine when you get a new job, you imagine what it might be like, but this is, this is above and beyond what I could, what I could even what I could even hope for, for this job to walk in and, uh, uh, this season for football, uh, the Jimbo Fisher era, who that's pretty exciting. And, and for me, it's with, to, to still work with Dave Elmendorf. Uh, I think this year was his 29th year <laughs> doing, doing radio. So to wow. me, to work with that hall of famer and, and, and that all American is, is something special. And, and I felt like, he was going to make sure I, I, I had I, in my mind, I felt like he at, at times was watching the game through my eyes since I was the new guy. And I think he wanted to make sure that that, that everything was going to be OK for, for me. And I and I appreciate that. I, I really do. Between between Dave and Will Johnson, uh, that football crew, I, I can thank I can't thank them enough for welcoming the new guy. And I feel like I've worked with those guys forever. And that's that has been special. Um, so for me, you come in, so my first game is Northwestern state, and I know it's not the most exciting game on the schedule, but it's my first. So that one's always going to be special to me, but then for week two to be Clemson and week four to be Alabama, <laughs> that's when, you know, this, this is going to be, this is going to be something. And then the, the, the culmination of LSU and the seven overtime game, and then to play the way they did, uh, in the Gator Bowl, uh, to me, it's just the, the first year for Jimbo. If if there is, we talk about a foundation. I mean, the, the foundation's there now. Now we start building this house, right? We can we start moving on from here uh, because I think whatever whatever again, same thing there. Whatever was imagined, if it was 
eight wins. Well, nine is better than eight, which is better than seven wins. And I just think that everybody just flat out bought in from the seniors in their last season or the, the juniors who have declared for the NFL. They, they all bought in, and I think that really, really helped. Um, and, and as for basketball, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I have known Billy Kennedy through the Spurs um, for him having been a scout and his friendship with R.C. Buford. So it's always been kind of fun to watch this team from afar, if you will, knowing how much respect that he has in that organization, to see him on some game nights when he gets a chance to, to get there, and then to come meet him, because uh, we met the coaches uh, as well as uh, we, I, I met with Jimbo, Billy Kennedy, I met with Scott Woodward, I met with Stephanie Rem. That was the face-to-face before I got this job. So it was nice to have those conversations with them. Um, and Billy, what, whatever the time was allotted, uh, we went well over that time. So it was, it was, he was very kind enough to, to that and now to work with him uh, day by day with, with basketball is, is really something special because I, I have a ton of respect for Billy Kennedy, not just the coach, but the person. Uh, and, and to me, that, that's important. You know, it's, it's funny because you hear a lot about, uh, you know, with the Spurs and the culture uh, and family is a big part of that, and that's what you can feel being built with these two programs, uh, you know, that, that family aspect, uh, which to me, if, if pro teams say it's the, the family aspect, you hear culture an awful lot. I think with A&M, with the, with the core values, I, I think it just plays hand in hand, and, and you can see that from our, from our student athletes. And I'm, and I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. I, I don't want that to, to sound cliche. I, I, I told everybody, I can't control what happens on the field and on the court, uh, but Lord knows there have been some very special moments already, already this season, the first season. There certainly have. And as you mentioned, you've, you've gotten to cover some of the most incredible basketball talent in the world. Your time with the Magic, I believe, included the, the reign of Shaq and Penny Hardaway. And then the Spurs, of course, the, the run that those guys have had with Robinson and Duncan and Ginobili and Parker. And it's been just an incredible thing. So now transitioning to Texas A&M and you're seeing a program in flux uh, we're, we're a little bit over halfway through this season, and it's kind of been a mixed bag of results so far for the Aggies. I think being the team's broadcaster, you certainly get a more intimate view of that team than everyone that's outside of the program. What have you observed with this team, given your perspective, that the average fan may not be aware of? So I use the word growth an awful lot with my partner, John Thornton, and, and, and Billy Kennedy, and I get a chance to talk about the growth, and, and I call it expanding your game. Uh, for, for each of these student athletes. And is this team, does this team want to be 8 and 10? Absolutely not. Are they better 18 games in than they were at the beginning of the season? Absolutely. And anybody who doesn't see that, I don't think is looking closely enough. You can't lose the talent that they lost on, to, to the NBA or, or to the professional ranks. And expect it. That's, that's, that was my big adjustment. Not, not so much. Uh, watching the talent, but, but knowing in, in the NBA, a couple players may leave. You may not have, you know, key pieces to leave. And, and, you know, that happens every, it's going to happen every year or every four years or three years with, with some players. So now you watch the growth of the new players who came in from Wendell Mitchell, Josh Neba, who sat out last year after transferring from St. Francis and Christian Mekawulu. Those are new guys to the program who are coming in to the Brandon Mayhans, who's a freshman, to John Walker, who's getting more time. But even the guys coming back, 
even a TJ Starks who will, I know he started at the end of the year, but now it's a new role for him or more minutes, way more minutes for guys like JJ Chandler and Savion flag and how they have to adjust to not just new roles and more minutes, but more responsibility. It changes when, when you're playing 15, 18 minutes a game, as opposed to 32 or 33, everything changes. And, and I look at someone like Savion, who, and this is where I start putting on, John Thornton and I will talk about this, you start looking about, okay, does this translate to the next level? Uh, and again, it's not, it, I look at that size of Savion at 6'7", and then seeing what he can do on the floor, and you have to get excited about that because it's a small forward size and the way he moves and the way he can rebound and an inside-out game. And then we're in Gonzaga, and all of a sudden we see him We see him bringing the ball up the floor, which he hadn't done in the past. And that's where I talk about the expanding your game, not just offensively, but what do you do defensively? Do you take the challenge of uh, stopping the other team's best score? And, and not just because that's what you were told to do, but that's what you want to do. Can you go get that rebound in traffic? Uh, can you run the show? Can you run this team when they have the lead? Can you run this team when, when you're down and you need a spark, when, when, when it's not going well? Those are the things that, you know, it's funny, I, I joke with BK and I said, you would love to be able to just snap your finger and say, okay, you've got experience, but you have to earn it and you have to go through the, the situations. And with growth comes growing pains, and it also comes with growing up. Sometimes you have to grow up. And uh, that's, that's what I find fascinating. I've always been a big-picture guy, and, I've, and I think I've had the chance to do that, being with the two teams, the, the Spurs and the Magic, where most nowadays we're in a snapshot microwave society. Not every NBA game is life or death. And if you've ever been around Greg Popovich, you know that. That November and December gets you ready for April, May, and hopefully June can you see that growth? Um, there's no must-wins in December or January in, in the NBA. I'm sorry, there's just not. But it can be treated like that because we love the drama of everything that goes around. But if Oklahoma, if, if, if Oklahoma City beats Milwaukee tonight, Milwaukee season isn't over. You know what I mean? But, but we kind of treat it like that in, in, our, in our sports world. And, it, and I've always had the opportunity to be with the team and take that bigger picture and see – this guy that they drafted, sent him to Austin in the G League, and then he comes back up and earns more and more minutes and, and becomes a, a vital role player. I'm kind of, kind of taking that same view with this A&M team with one eye on who will be coming in in the future to make this team better because when those kids come in next year, they're going to be joining more finished products next year than they will the team right now. It still hurts to lose games in Vancouver when you play – pretty well, not well enough to beat Minnesota, and not well enough to beat Washington, and then you, you know, the, the ones that hurt, I think, more are, you can't play like you did against Texas Southern, not at home, you can't play the way you did against Auburn and Missouri, at home, when you had a chance to build off the Alabama win, but those are the things you learn. Now, if, if you find out that that's how it's always going to be, well, maybe you've got the wrong players, but I don't think that's the case. I think there's a team that's getting some leadership, and it might be from some of the new guys. And I think, you know, a lot of these guys are getting accustomed to their new roles, and, and that takes a little time to get comfortable. But as you guys know, you, you can't ease your way into the SEC schedule. That's just not possible because there's no easy game when you, when you get into the conference. But it's one of the reasons why I asked Billy what I did about 
is this why you you try to load up a Gonzaga on the road and go play a big a Big Ten team like Minnesota and a Pac-12 team like Washington in a neutral site? Uh, does that get you ready for the conference? And I and I like that he does that, and I like that he played in Portland against Oregon State. Does that help you? And I think we're starting to see that you know you get comfortable in these in in in, in these new roles, and and we're seeing, as I said before, that that expanded expanding game for some of these players. And on that thread of the expanding game, I think you know you mentioned the emergence of Savion Flag, and he's been phenomenal this year for the Ags. The other player I've been tremendously impressed with is Josh Nebo. I wasn't expecting that much coming out of uh, coming out of St. Francis, a small conference. Yes, he was defensive player of the year, had great shot blocking numbers, but I, I just I wasn't sure how well that would translate to AM. And he got here and that that man has been outstanding inside. I'm with you. I'm with you. And and Billy was asked if they saw this in him and they saw the defensive prowess in him. It's the offensive game that has uh, opened their eyes a little bit, which is which is good. There's a there's a patience to him. There is a maturity on the defensive end as well. I, I look at him as a shot blocker, and I'm going to throw this name out there, and it's not because he's the next this guy, but the way he blocks shots is very Bill Russell-esque. Bill Russell didn't always have to pound it. 10, 20 rows up into the up into the stands. Bill Russell had a knack of blocking the ball and making it a fast break for his, for his teammates. Nebo has this knack as well of of the block becomes uh, a transition uh, for this team. He's very he's very good at that at, at keeping in play. But there are times that you know he's going to have to spike it, the old volleyball spike out of bounds, just to make his make his presence felt. I I, I but I also looked at. You know, John Thornton said this, and he, and he has said this on a couple of our broadcasts. He does what he does well. He doesn't try to be someone he's not. He knows what he does, and he does that very well. You're not going to see Nebo step out and shoot a three. It's not his game. Not right now. Now, I'm not saying in the future it, it will be or, or won't be, but right now. But his work in the block, the way he rebounds, he's a good offensive rebound. He can rebound in traffic. Um, defensively, he's that last line of defense. You were talking about, you know, a couple of those Spurs names. Uh, Avery Johnson was the one who always said the comforting factor of knowing that if I make a mistake out on the perimeter, I've got five O behind me to erase my mistake. And, and David Robinson, well, when this Aggie team can trust that as well and know, okay, I made a mistake out front. Josh Nebo can erase that mistake. Maybe it's a, a block for us. Maybe it goes out of bounds. It can reset your defense a little bit. I've, I've enjoyed watching him, and I've, I've enjoyed watching Christian Mekawulu also. Same thing, going from the Ohio Valley Conference to the SEC. At no point, guys, did I ever think um, that they were scared, not in the moment. The, it, the moment was too big for them. Uh, to me, they look like they, they belong. Well, let's transition to your podcast, Andrew, because I wanted to talk about Wendell Mitchell. He's, he's really been... Uh, probably our best player, I would say, for the past week. I have him pegged as a dark horse for SEC Player of the Week. I don't know if he'll grab it, but I think you could put his numbers in the last two games and stack that against anybody in the conference. Uh, and it appears he was your he was your guest on the episode Conversations. That's run through the Studio 12 series. Uh, walk us through what you learned in that conversation and what you think about his play so far. I've, I've really enjoyed watching him play, and I, and I think the, eye, the eye-popping one play for me was uh, the, the strip in Alabama that gave A&M the lead, uh, not just the steal as, as Alabama was trying to get set up, 
But he also had two guys chasing him down, and he calmly made that layup. But that was huge. I think a huge play. And I think he's one of those players who's starting to gain a little bit of that leadership. And I think that's hard for the new guy. I think you have to pick and choose your spot to do that or choose your, your, your time for that. Uh, there's a confidence because, look, he played at Baylor. And I know it wasn't, I, I, it wasn't a ton of minutes. It's not the same minutes that he's getting now. But he played at Baylor. And I think, I think the year at Trinity Valley Community College did him an awful lot of good. I think it was eye-opening. I think it was get back to work. Um, you know, he talked about it was almost like being recruited all over again. I think he appreciates more. Uh, that's, what, that's what I have gotten from him uh, in the past. Um, I find it interesting, you know, Billy Kennedy also said, look, he's a Juco guy also uh, and, and, and appreciates what, what he is going through. What I didn't know, and I learned this season, I didn't realize he was such a big bass fisherman. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that at all, but the kid from Rockdale, that's what he, that's what he loves to do as well as uh, reading. So what we try to do with conversations, it's, it's more than just the three minute interview that you get before a game or, or post game. It's, it's a chance for our fans to get an idea, learn a little bit more about them, uh, you know, through, through my curiosity. You're never going to learn absolutely everything. You don't have that much time, but it was just really neat to talk with him about his journey uh, to A&M, what it's like here, what A&M means. We've, we've added the, the video component with basketball, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, with with the, the ones that we did for football, I kind of steered it towards a lot of the players who had been here, either seniors or juniors, along the lines of what A&M means to them, and, and, and to get a peek in what this Aggie network and this Aggie family is all about. Uh, so that, that, is, that, that was wonderful. And I just find that these student-athletes are just so impressive when you, when you sit down and talk with them. But I, I hope that they can be relaxed. And, 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 and really, it's funny. We, I toyed with what name were we going to use, and that was like the default name, Conversations. And the more I thought about it, it was, you know what, that's exactly what we want to do here. It just, 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 just talk back and forth and, and learn more about the student-athlete. I, I had learned a long time ago from the people that I work with that if my question is longer than the person I'm interviewing's answer, I've asked the wrong question. So I try to keep them as short as possible and, and, and let the person that I'm talking with have, have the forum and, and have the floor. And that's, that's just been wonderful to be able to do. We just did... Uh, Christian Mekwulu, uh, that will come out this week. Great to talk with Mech. And obviously we're going to, we're going to uh, attempt to do this every week and we've got a, a couple more lined up. Uh, I, I'm going to fight, I think Josh Nebo, he has the Nebo show that he has done. And I certainly hope he knows that he's got to come on my turf, but I may surrender just a little bit and let him have a little time as, as well as we do a conversation with him. <laughs> Very nice. So before we let you go, what is your outlook for the Aggies for the rest of this season? You know, I think every game is going to be a tight game. I, I really do. I, I think they're going to, you know, I, I want them to be able to learn to get over the hump. And, and that's where I think the Kansas State win. I, I keep pinpointing a couple of different moments in that game. Uh, when they, when K-State went on a 12-2 run, uh, had an eight-point lead, and then ESPN helped us with this one. Their last eight possessions, I think they went one for five and three turnovers. And instead of having a double-digit lead going into halftime or the Aggies saying, oh, here we go again, uh, 
It was just a four-point game. And then K-State got the first bucket, and then they went cold, and the Aggies made them pay. They were able to get stops. They were able, I thought they played their 2-3 zone as effectively as they played all season. I think you saw that you know, Chuck take the game over. Um, I think you saw that there were some mistakes, that, that this is a team that cannot rest on their, any laurels. I, I just don't think they're built that way. And K-State made the comeback, and when they, when they cut the nine-point lead to three, I thought that was another key moment. The Aggies weathered that storm after the timeout. They executed, scored, got their stops, and then they were able to play with the lead and close that game down, and that had been a, a problem. I'm hoping that, you know, I would love to see them sweep the rest, but, it, you know, the SEC is just, is just too good. But when they learn that this is the recipe, it, you know, more and more I'm thinking that Auburn and Missouri were the anomalies, and more and more how they played against Arkansas and how they started against Kentucky and at times fought in the second half against Kentucky and fought back against Alabama in that first half in Florida. If they realize that's the recipe, they're not always going to get out to 12 two starts against, the, against Kentucky or have a 13-point lead at the half against Florida. When they realize that that's the recipe and they have to stay with it, that's when I think you see the identity. And that's another big word for me. What is your identity? Well, they held – I know K-State's not a great offensive team, but when we, when we went into that game on Saturday, Kansas State was the team that had the defensive prowess. The Aggies held them to 53 points. And in college basketball today, <laughs> that's, that's not easy, or, or, in, or in basketball today. If they start getting an idea of what their identity is and playing to that identity, and if it is being better in a 2-3 zone or matching up, or stopping the leading scorer as they had done in the past, holding, holding the top one or two leading scorers below their averages and not letting someone else hurt them from beyond the arc. When they realize on that defensive end, and that's the reason why you play defense, is to get the ball, get the rebound, get the ball, and go play offense, and then, and then share that basketball. When that identity starts coming through, then I think they're going to have more success. But, I, but I, I'm going to go back to what I had said before. I, I, I think these players are going to be better players at the end of the year, and I, and I certainly hope there are some victories and some wins that will, that will punctuate this growth and, and, and really have a say in the SEC. I would, I would really like to see them finish strong. And when they have a, a game like that on Saturday, I know LSU is a tough matchup, and obviously with Tennessee coming in, but can you, can, you, can you make that moment become momentum? That's what they failed against Auburn and Missouri. They got no momentum from that win in Alabama. Will they learn from that and get some momentum from this win against Kansas State and carry that momentum through the rest of the SEC schedule? Andrew, this has been a real treat. We really appreciate you coming on, providing some great insights into the team, and it's really cool to, to hear about your experiences here in Aggieland and, and as well as your insights from uh, prior stops in your career. So we're, we're thrilled to have you on with us today. We're thrilled to have you calling the games for Aggie Sports because this is great to hear your voice uh, cheering for the good guys. <laughs> you are kind. Absolute pleasure. And again, absolutely thrilled to be here. Thanks again to Andrew Monaco for joining us. That was a really great conversation, and we really enjoyed getting to take the time to, to talk to him. So with that under our belts, I think we can look ahead at this week. Uh, two very big games at home, one against LSU, who is undefeated in SEC play, 
and then the number one team in the country comes to your gym on a Saturday. Reed Arena needs to be packed when Tennessee comes to town. Rick Barnes, of course, has a long history with the Aggies from his time at Texas. Let's make sure and uh, let Rick know just how much we we love and adore him. Uh, David, I'm, I'm looking forward to this week. I think it'll be an interesting litmus test. I do think that you're probably in store for assessing these games on a moral victory basis if if that's <laughs> where things are going. But, oh boy. Yeah, they love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what are your expectations here? So I think we have an interesting opportunity here, Blake, and I'm a little excited because LSU and Arkansas are typically the uh, the, the the opponents we have every year that would draw the best home crowd. There's just an innate interest in those two programs. We got some bad luck when we drew Arkansas before the students came back on January 5th. But I think we're going to get a decent crowd, maybe even a good crowd by this season's standards when undefeated in the SEC LSU comes to town for an 8 p.m. game on Wednesday. And that 8 p.m. is key. It can be tough to get people there by 6. An 8 p.m. tip is key. And I think the Kansas State results going to help get us a decent crowd to that game. If we can play well one more time, just one more time is all I ask. I think there's a chance you get a really good environment when, for the Tennessee game on Saturday, which... Again, a good draw here, 7 p.m. tip uh, for Tennessee. So if we can string these things together, legitimate momentum is in our grasp. We don't have it yet, but you can see it from here. I think it all hinges on how well we play Wednesday night. If we can squeeze out a win against LSU, we could be moving in the right direction. So any final thoughts from you before we we, uh, sign off for the evening? Yeah, I I think the LSU game is actually the more winnable of the two. Mm -hmm. I think that's no surprise there. Tennessee is the number one team in the country. Admiral Schofield, Grant Williams, those guys, man, that's that's just a stout lineup. But once again, students, fans make it a personal challenge to to be loud and create a hostile environment. Like I said, the number one team in the country is coming to your gym. Let's make sure they're not welcome here. Let's do it. Let's build some home momentum and we'll talk next week with hopefully some good news to share. Sounds good. Talk to you later.